0: Kempis gave me a sermon title and a sermon text. He didn't bless me with his notes, which would have been nice. (laughs) But the title was enough. I thought, uh, Christ's power over death. That's a good good line right there. And um, as George Bernard Shaw said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. So this is a relevant topic for us, of course, to understand what in the world that means because it sounds pretty important for people that are going to die. Christ's, right, his victory, his conquering, his power over death. So if I said to you, what does that mean that Christ has power over death? I'm going to bring you up here, put you on the platform, say so you tell us what that means. Right? What, does that, what, what does that mean? Um, how important is it? What difference does it make? Uh, why is that a big deal? What does it have to do with who we are as, as Christians? Um, I think you could probably uh, pretty easily put some things through your mouth that would sound pretty orthodox, and you'd say, "Hey, this this is important. This is uh, I think most of you don't have to be at church very long to say this is uh, really the whole point." And I want to remind you of that as we get into our passage in John 19 by starting at a passage that I hope many of you think about. If I were to say, uh, where should we go in Scripture to understand the centrality of Christ having power over death? Uh, If you are a Sunday school graduate, you should say 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So turn there with me and let me remind you why this sentence, this phrase that Christ uh, has this power over. Over death, that he is the one who is for us the victor over the problem that we all face. And it is a problem. It's the thing that we all innately fear. It's the concern that we have, as God puts two competing factors within every person a desire and a knowledge and a sense and an intuitive desire and attraction to eternity. And yet we're in a a body. And in a world, a temporal fallen world, where we're going to die, uh, those two things in competition with each other, they, they lead us to this internal conflict of saying, uh, we got a problem and it needs to be solved. Drop down to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15, just to give us a reminder of why John chapter 19 and 20 are so important. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, First Corinthians fifteen twelve. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, it's hard to believe that people in the early church could be sitting there saying, well, we're not going to come back from the dead. There's no resurrection for us. But that was what was going on. And though I would hope everyone here says, yeah, there is life after death. There are plenty of us that probably live as uh, practical non-resurrectionists, if that is a word. If not, we've just made it. Um, just like some have said that we may be theists, but we live as practical atheists. That may not have much difference in the way you think or the way you live or the way you fear, but it ought to. Um, but he says, in verse thirteen: If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. You can't say Christ was raised from the dead, but we're not going to be raised from the dead. And he makes this connection throughout this passage. Well, here's six things he says to us about the importance, the centrality, the critical nature of Christ rising from the dead. The first thing, look at this, verse 14, first half of the verse, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And, And that's not just the preaching about this particular point. The preaching about everything is in vain. I mean, we really should be you know, gathering together to talk about, you know, restoring, you know, old cars or talking about, you know, I don't know, guns or fishing or something. Uh, really, it's nonsensical for us to be talking to you about what the Bible says, regardless of the topic, if Christ is not risen from the dead. That's how important it is. Our, our message, our preaching, teaching, coming to church and listening to people talk about God, it's all for naught. It's all empty. It's all ridiculous. Speaking of cars, it reminds me of when my dad gave me a 67 Volkswagen Bug. I was 15 years old, and it was in the driveway when I came home from from school, and there it was, and it was like, wow, I can't believe I got a car. We talked about it, and if you've heard the story, you you probably know the punchline. Dad said there's no engine in it. (laughs) Uh, So it was fun to sit in for the first afternoon that I had it, but Dad said, we're going to have to build an engine here to put in it if you're going to drive it, of course, um, the car looked good, but until I picked up the back hatch to see that, of course, there was nothing but, you know, half of a transmission, you know, the receiving end of the transmission, they're staring at me. I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is a problem. Christianity is like that. It would be just a shell of a religion. The preaching has is, is got no purpose if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Look at the next line. Your faith is in vain. Faith. Faith is this sense of that I have this confidence in God, that God, with me and God, it's going to be okay. I'm trusting in. All your confidence has no basis, right? We're all just whistling through the graveyard. There's no, there's no, there's no hope of anything beyond this life if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Worse than that, think about it. Most of us, at least, we give, uh, some head nod to scripture if not memorizing it meditating on it reading it every day studying it it says here in verse 15 we're found to be misrepresenting God and when he says we he's talking about the apostles he set this up early in the book that we are people that are bringing the mysteries of God to you that we're bringing spiritual truths to spiritual minds that are going to spiritually appraise this stuff and he says really you need to know we're liars the cornerstone of our teaching is that we we follow a resurrected Christ, that that resurrection of Christ matters for our eternity and puts our hope of faith in perspective and that we have some gain for following Christ. But in this case, we're really just liars because the whole testimony, it says in the middle of verse 15 about God is that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, well, here's another reason right here that this matters. Because if he hasn't been, it says at the bottom of verse 17, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. I mean, that's a whole other way to look at this Christianity thing. Not only is it supposed to take care of my eternity, but it's supposed to take the problem that causes a hopeless eternity. It's taking that out of the way. It's the Psalm 103 that my transgressions are removed from me as far as the east is from the west. And what he's saying is that it didn't happen if Christ did not physically historically rise from the dead. Our message is useless. Confidence in Christ has no basis. We're following the teaching of liars. Uh, You're still guilty before God. That's the essence of this point. And then he says this, verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I mean, you've been to a few funerals, right? The last 10 years of your life. I'm assuming there's somebody you care about that you've gone and If they're professing Christians, you have all this talk about seeing them again and reuniting. And he says, stop, stop. They're gone. It's over. If there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no there's no hope at funerals. There's no sense of even sitting around and trying to encourage each other or comfort each other. It's it's for naught. Verse 19. Here's the sixth reason. This is critically important. For in Christ we have hoped, for if in Christ, rather, we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We've got a pathetic religion here, because all we've really done is rearranged a few things in our lives, most of which, by the way, are very costly. Think about it as Colossians 3.5 says, we're always battling these internal lusts, and we're trying to make sure that we're caring about other people. We're trying to do the things that God asked, and it's really a fight with our own flesh. And he says, all of this is just, it's pathetic, I mean, the deprivation, the, you know, the, the self-discipline, the focus on studying the Bible, the concern about talking about religion with non-Christians, all of this is just, it's, it's pathetic. We should be pitied if it's really just about this life, because this life's pretty rough for Christians. Does Christ have power over death? Well, if, if he doesn't, because he hasn't been raised, then we're really wasting our time. It's the linchpin, and it's why the, it, it really should be the thing that we always point to to say, if this happened, right, then everything makes sense. If this didn't happen, then we're, we, we ought to just go and, and do something else. We ought to, as he says, look at verse 32, as long as we're in this passage. He says, what do I gain? 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus, right? If, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, that's, that's an all or nothing proposition and super helpful for us, I think, when we think about the fact that we're about to read John chapter 19 and John chapter 20, where Jesus rises from the dead. Everything hinges on this. This is the linchpin. So let's get to our passage that you've uh, prepped for. Hopefully, you've done some questions. You're going to talk about it in a minute, but let's go to John chapter 19, verses 38-38 through 42 that ends the chapter then we'll look at the first 10 verses of chapter 20 let me read the first section for you we'll just read a section at a time since it's long, such a long passage verse 38 says after these things joseph of arimathea who was a disciple that word by the way is used broadly you do know the word disciple is used not only of you know the apostles it's used of just the crowds that uh, listen to jesus it's used of non-christians Right, John chapter 6, there's plenty of disciples that uh, hear hard things and then they just leave. It's like the soils, right? You got people that are attracted to Christianity, they receive the word with joy, but they don't bear any fruit because they're not real Christians. So disciples is a, is a broad word here. And this particular disciple of Christ, it says, uh, was following Jesus secretly because he feared the Jews, right? He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission, uh, by the way, he's in the Sanhedrin. You know what the Sanhedrin is. What's the, what's the modern equivalent to the Sanhedrin in our country? Court. Supreme Court, right? These are the the, the, the the robe justices. Now, there's 70 of them, so it's a bigger court than our court. But these guys are the top of the, the system. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 57, reminds us that he's rich. He's really wealthy. Uh, Mark 15, 43 Luke 23, 51 says he has an interest in Christ. He's interested in Christ. He wants to pursue Christ at some level, but this passage reminds us that he's afraid. He's afraid of the cost of it all, but he's got connections and he's going to go to Pilate and he's going to ask for the body and he was given permission. So he came and took away the body and Nicodemus also. <laughs> Remember when we meet Nicodemus in John chapter three, the beginning phrase, uh, and it's more than just a reference to what time of day he comes, because it says at night. Uh, literally, the Greek text reads, at, at, at night, at a night kind of time, Nicodemus came to him. In other words, you might translate it this way, at least in the vernacular, in, under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus went to him. It's got that same feel as, as Joseph of Arimathea. So you got Joseph and, and Nicodemus, both are kind of two peas in a pod when it comes to this concept of, well we got to secretly go here and and show our devotion to Christ or our interest in Christ. And it says it right here, Nicodemus also had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, which by the way, isn't it hard when you got one foot in and one foot out because you're afraid, right? Here are these two powerful men, rich men, important men. And yet, uh, you know, they're the kind of guys that Sneak around and don't want to be fully in this thing. Nevertheless, they play a role here in putting Jesus in a grave that, according to Isaiah 53, was part of the prophetic promise of what would happen to Jesus. They took the body, they bound it in linen cloths with spices, just like we would do in our modern embalming process, trying to, you know, make sure this is not a smelly corpse, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close by, right, this was all at least circumstantial in their minds, they put, they put Jesus' body there. Let's just deal with this particular text here. The thing that should jump out at us, I think, that word in the middle of verse 33, that Joseph of Arimathea, and of course that phrase even by night that Nicodemus comes in verse 39, reminds us of some guys that are afraid. Let me put it this way, just by way of application. Number one, if you're taking notes, it says on your worksheets, if Christ has power over death, that's how I've worded this, right? Here it is. Don't fear anything else. Because wouldn't you want to say to Nicodemus, wouldn't you want to say to Joseph of Arimathea, you shouldn't be afraid of the Jews? Isn't that what Jesus was telling the the Galilean fishermen? Don't be afraid. You you should stand up for Christ who, by the way, though they don't expect it because they're putting him in spices and, and in all the regular burial garb that you would put someone if you expected him to stay dead. They didn't have the expectation here of him coming back to life. It doesn't seem so by the way that they bound him in these claws and put all these spices around him. But the point is, had you known that really he is the king of kings and lord of lords, that he's the one who has victory over death and that he's the resurrected one, you wouldn't look at a bunch of, you know, wrinkly old men in robes in the Sanhedrin and say, well, I'm really afraid to be identified with this guy because I'm afraid you won't like me. Which, by the way, I think is a good lesson for all of us. If I were to say to all your friends at work, right, this guy's a Christian. He believes in the resurrection of Christ. He believes in a miraculous event 2,000 years ago when a guy was thoroughly dead, he came back to life. And he's a follower of that Christ. And he gives money to his church. And he cares about people's souls. And he believes the miracles in the Bible. And he actually believes that the Bible is God's word. And everything it says is authoritative. If I told all your friends that at work, I just wonder how you'd feel about that, right? And I hope some of you are saying, well, that's okay. I I don't care. I'm not afraid. If really Christ has victory over death, right, why would we care what people that are dying think about us? Because we're associated with him. I mean, I'd like to do one thing in this sermon for sure, and that is to kind of up your courage to say, I stand with Christ. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid to say, I am with him because really... The Bible says the one who has conquered death, here's how it's put in Revelation, he's been given the key to death and Hades and hell. Think about that, right? He's the one that unlocks the gates and sends the critics to hell. He's the one that opens up the gates and sends people into the blessing of the kingdom. He's the gatekeeper of all of this. He's the one that's got the keys. That's how it's put poetically, symbolically, illustratively. And I'm thinking, really, do we care that much what people think? Who are going to have to sit there and obey the dictates of Christ on judgment day I, I don't think we should care I don't think you should care and whatever you care if it's up here I'd like it to be down here because that really makes sense because if Christ really has power over death and he proved it by the resurrection I shouldn't fear anything else I shouldn't fear I guess we should start with death itself Jot this down. Don't need to turn there. I know you know the passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death, which everyone, it says, by default, is in slavery to the fear of death. I just think let's start with that. Let's make sure before we even talk about other people. Are you afraid of death? I mean, we should just start with that. Are you afraid of death? Um, I, I, I just... I think there's people in our church that say they're not afraid of death. But even when the topic comes up or the discussion comes up or we, we, we talk about someone that's dying in the church, I just, I can see it. I can sense it. And I'm just thinking at some point our theology has to become so real that when I think about my own demise, I'm not afraid. Here's what Paul said about his death in Philippians chapter 1. And he used this word. It's very important. He talked about courage, right? He talked about courage. He, he said, I'm, I'm confident. Let's just read it for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. I'm confident. I know that through your prayers and by the help of the Spirit, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. So he knows that he's going to get out, but he still reverts back to this, this enslavement that he has, this imprisonment, this incarceration that he's in. And he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed, but that with full courage, there's the word, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And the courage part needs to not only apply to the fact that I'm courageously facing the Christian life and whatever problems there might be with people rejecting me or thinking I'm silly or whatever it might be, Uh, but death I'm not afraid of. I'm going to face death with courage. I want you to think about your death. I want you to think about the day you're going to die. I want you to think about all the possible ways that you could die. And I want you to start to say, listen, I'm going to have courage in facing that. And stop with this bifurcation of, I'm not afraid to, to die. Right? I'm just afraid of the process of dying. Right? People say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. Um, we need to get that out of our minds and say, I'm not afraid of either. I'm not afraid of either. I'm not going to be afraid of either. Because here's the thing God wants Christians to have is courage. Why? Because God conquered death. And he goes on to say in the next passage, right, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So on the way to death, I'm going to have Christ. And Christ is going to walk me through the valley of the shadow of death. And and I'm going to face that because I believe my faith not only is good enough for me to know that I'm going to go and be with Christ when I die, but he's going to walk me through everything that's going to get me there. And so there's going to be pain involved, right? I'm just afraid of the pain. I'm glad you said that. Go to Luke chapter 12. Let's just talk a little bit about the things that scare grown men. We we can be scared of death, and at some point we have to say, no, my theology is based on a Christ that has risen. That's the core of my theology. Therefore, I'm not going to be afraid of death. He came to free us from that enslavement. None of us here should have it if we're genuine Christians. Uh, I'm also not afraid of anything that might happen between here and there. Drop down to verse 4. I tell you, my friends, words of Christ here to you do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do. And most of us are going to say, well, that seems like a lot, right? (laughs) That's the problem. That is the part I do fear. Jesus said, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid because even if they were to torture you and kill you, which let me, little sidebar here. If you don't read periodically the martyrs of the church, you need to do it. I mean, you need to do it. You need to get Even if it's just the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which, by the way, was the third most popular book in in historic colonial America. Everybody had a Bible on their shelf, right? If they could afford it, everyone had uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is a good one for you to read as well. And they had the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those were the three books. If you only had three books, that's what they had. Those were the critical books to help people understand what it is to live for Christ, even if it costs us Right? And the whole Pilgrim's Progress, a great lesson to help not only themselves but their children know what this journey is going to be like. But the point is that we are going to have in our lives this confidence that God is going to get us through whatever it might be that might lead us to our own demise, even if it's the persecution and the martyrdom of, of some you know, horrifically authoritarian, uh, violent government. Because here's what he says, to put it all in perspective. This is why I'm trying to compare... If he's conquered death, I don't fear anything else. Look at verse 5. But I warn you, right, whom to fear? Fear him who after he's killed, because he's the one who really determines all that, how you're going to die, Paul, whether it's by the hands of the Romans in this imprisonment or whether it's by a crowd in Lystra or whether you get stoned in Antioch and die there, or whether you get led to the lions in some forum, or whether you die by decapitation in Rome, which we know that he did he says, I'll tell you who you should fear. You should fear him who, when he's killed you, however he decides to do it, he has the authority to then cast you into hell, which is far worse. So death is one thing. Second death is another thing. God controls both of those. And here's the deal. He says, yes, as though he's stuttering, yes, you should fear him. But then he turns this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. None of them are outside the purview and the direction and the sovereignty of God as to when they die or how they die. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And here he is talking to his disciples about the fact that God is a God who's provided not only for your life, but also for the way you die and for what lies beyond. And you need to realize that if you know that there's a God that has dealt with those things, then there's nothing that you should fear, not only death itself, but whatever comes between now and death and whatever pain is involved. Pain should be faced with courage in part because it's put in perspective By the fact that there is a God who has said to to you, even though I could condemn you, I by my grace have forgiven you. No fear. I don't want to be like Nicodemus who has to come under the cover of darkness. And I certainly don't want to be like Joseph of Arimathea, as worthy and valuable and as, as virtuous as they might be doing what they're doing in our passage. I still don't want to be the kind of person that fears what other people might think. I certainly want to fear what they think, because the fear of death has been eradicated, the fear of violence has been eradicated. And I can't help but read more of this passage. Look at verse 8. I mean, look at the fear of rejection that a lot of us have. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Now, that's a big deal. I got the armies of heaven. I got the God who made me. And here's a God who says, if you're not ashamed of me down there, I'm not going to be ashamed of you. Uh, Acknowledge me confess me, openly associate, don't worry about the Sanhedrin, don't worry about your coworkers. don't worry about your family members, don't worry about the people out there on the street who think we're crazy. If you deny me before men, you will be denied, verse 9, before the angels of God. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you're to say. What well, translation? Don't be afraid. You're not blaspheming God, right? You're standing here confessing that God is your God, that Christ is your king, and you shouldn't be afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of their rejection, I'm not afraid of what they might say, I'm not afraid of what they might do, right? Verses four through seven, not afraid of what they're gonna do, verses eight through. 12, it doesn't matter if I'm excluded because of this. If we were really going to get down into this, and I think you as a leader in your home, if you happen to be a dad and you're leading a home, certainly I think you should know the proclivities of your spouse or even sometimes your kids about security issues regarding finances. And that's what he gets into next. I won't take time to read it, but at least glance through verses 13 through 21, right? Money, I I shouldn't worry about bankruptcy. I shouldn't worry about poverty. I shouldn't worry about not making enough, right? The point of your Christian life is to trust God, to be faithful, to do right, to budget, to give, right? To be wise, but it doesn't matter what it might cost me to stand with Christ, even if it's financial. And then you want the catch-all. We don't even have time to get into this, but verses 22 and following, what's the heading in the ESV say? Above verse 22, do not be anxious. It's kind of the catch-all. No matter what it is, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't fear anything. Don't fear death. Don't fear violence. Don't fear rejection. Don't fear poverty. Don't fear anything. And here we're introduced to two guys doing a noble thing, but they're afraid. And there's a lot of people in this room, I'll bet, who do noble Christian things, but they're afraid. And that needs to be eradicated. And we're always worried about porn and we're always worried about, you know, being honest or whatever the issues are. And those are all things we should worry about. But here's one thing you should worry about. Am I afraid of anything? Shouldn't be afraid of anything. And not because you're carrying your Glock around or whatever, right? Right? Because I know that if everything were, were kicked out from underneath me, including my health, and I'm gasping for breath on my deathbed, I'm not afraid. I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet all this with courage. Ultimately, God has conquered death and now I've learned in in Luke 12 he's got the hairs on my head numbered there's nothing for me to be afraid of hey Joseph hey Nicodemus I don't want to be like you I'd like to be better than you as a Christian without fear in my life of course the punchline of our passage go back to John chapter 20 is the heading over verse 1 in chapter 20 the resurrection right now the first day of the week let me read it for you John 20 let's look at the first five verses now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved that's of course as I'm sure you've been taught in our study of John is the way John likes to carefully and diplomatically refer to himself in an oblique way an obscure way and he said to them and he said to them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Okay, not as humble as we thought here, I suppose. And he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I don't know what you would do in that situation, but I mean, here's a very real human description of how they were dealing with the empty tomb. Even that last line in verse 5 there, he didn't, he didn't go in. Saying things like, where did he go? Here's this door, it's open. If Christ has really risen from the dead, it's not acting, they're not acting. Not only do Joseph and Nicodemus like, prepare his body as though he's not rising from the dead, here are his disciples that Jesus preached to, and it's like, they don't even know what's going on. Jesus said it, prophecy said it, but, but they're not sure they don't know what's happening because it's, it's, it's beyond their, their comprehension, even though it shouldn't have been because Jesus was teaching that. There's no certainty about the things that Christ had said, and he said it repeatedly. As a matter of fact, it, it's worth pointing out. Oh, did I write the passage down? Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. That is set up with, from that time on, he began to show his disciples. He's, he's repeating the message. But they weren't getting it in this particular passage. And it's important for us to recognize that we need to get it. If Christ has power over death, the empty tomb, they're gonna get it, but right here they don't get it, they're not certain. If you're taking notes, number two, if Christ has power over death, right, you should know it for certain. You should know it. You should know it for certain. And I just wonder, really, I wonder, if you were pressed with a room of atheists, you were surrounded by these, you know, these these professors at the UCI or wherever college you can imagine, maybe the college you graduated from, and they're there pressing you on this issue. Oh, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? Are you sure, right? These people were doing what everyone would do if they saw the tomb opened, right? The stone was open, the portal was open, and the body wasn't there. They're thinking, well, someone's took them. What's going on here? I don't get it. It's not making sense to me, right? That view of this particular situation by those disciples and the Marys that were there, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, you recognize that they're not, they're not sure. They're going to be sure, but they're not sure here. And you should know for certain. If Christ has risen from the dead, you should know. You should know it logically that it's taken place. And I just want you to think about that logically. If, if, if this didn't happen, right, then it didn't happen. If it did happen, then it did happen. You can't have it both ways. So logically, you've got two options. Islam says Jesus did not, right, not even be crucified. There was some, somebody replaced him there. Certainly didn't rise from the dead, right? Buddhism, you've got all the religions that are projecting the truth. Judaism, Jesus died, he died on a cross and he stayed dead. Either that's true or he rose from the dead. But logically, we've got to know that there's only two options. There's no middle ground, And Christianity has always challenged the skeptics, whether it's, you know, Josh McDowell or Simon Greenleaf back in the day or Lee Strobel or pick the guys that have been challenged to consider this singular claim. It is the linchpin as we started, but you've got to know for certain. And once you know for certain, I mean, that changes everything, but you know you need to recognize we don't think in a postmodern way, certainly not when we're talking to our doctor or to our our accountant, but people love to think in this postmodern way, like there's no absolute truth when they're talking about religious things and this they think is a religious thing when Christianity has been claiming from the beginning this is a historic thing did it happen or did it not happen this is in epistemology we call this the the theory of truth a correspondence theory of truth do we believe that truth is a statement about something that corresponds with something that is real something that has happened and when you make historical claims about Christ rising from the dead, you only have two options. Did he really do it or did he not do it? So it starts with that. I can't be certain, thinking there's some kind of spectrum of belief regarding the resurrection. Either Jesus died and stayed dead or Jesus is a Now, historically, what am I going to do with this claim? I don't want to get into all the things that we might say at an Easter service, but it's good for us at least in a men's Bible study to remember that we've got... You know, we've got either witnesses that lied on purpose or witnesses that lied accidentally. Those are two main categories for us to consider, right? Because ultimately we're writing a story here in John 20, claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, but here they're uncertain, but they're going to claim that they're going to become certain, and then they're going to write these gospels, and we're going to learn that their assertion about corresponding events in reality are that he's, he's alive. He was dead, and then he's alive. And I'm just saying, we've got to say either they said that because they knew they weren't corresponding their words with reality, or they said that, right, thinking, well, it was reality, when in fact, the third party observers are going to say, well, it really didn't happen. So let's just start with thinking that they said it, and they said it knowing it didn't happen. I just think, again, people want that kind of Christianity. All Like, liberal Christianity will say that. We don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Christ, but we still want Christianity. We still want to quote the Bible. And just, I want you to see what a weird thing that is. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you're reading from a book about people that are asserting something. They know that it wasn't true, but they claim that it was true. And in that sense, we're following a book by people that are lying to us about, What they say is the cornerstone of Christianity, and then they're holding it out as a hope that when you die, things are going to be okay because look what happened to Christ. I'm just saying this is something we want to be far away from if it didn't happen. We just don't want our kids going to the church and learning this stuff or our grandkids being raised in Sunday school hearing about this if it didn't happen because we know we're submitting them to a book that is telling them to value virtuous, truthful things, and yet the whole book is based on a lie because the pinnacle of biblical revelation is Jesus rose from the dead. So if they lied on purpose, we've got some problems. If they lied on accident, well, I guess we got a couple choices there too. As C.S. Lewis rightly points out, either they were delusional, they thought he was risen from the dead, but he actually wasn't, and they were, they were just crazy, right? They, they didn't understand, they, they, they couldn't process this. And if that's the case, as others have pointed out through history, then we're following a book, reading uh, John chapter 20, and uh, we're really reading the assertions of people that are, are, are crazy, delusional. They don't have touch with reality. Now, I know plenty of people that don't have touch with reality, probably more than I, I would like to admit. Uh, and I don't want to take advice from them about anything. I just, I'm not interested. And yet, some people want their cake and eat it too. I want a religion but I don't want to adhere to those things like a bodily resurrection. And I can just take, maybe they were sincere, but whatever. I can follow their ethics. I don't, I don't think that makes much sense. Thirdly, you can say, well, they believed it even though it didn't happen. So maybe they were just confused. They were duped somehow. And there's plenty of theories about that, right? That Jesus, they thought was really dead when they put him in the tomb, but he wasn't really dead like the princess bride. He was mostly dead, but he came back to life, right? He was revived. Um, And and all I'm saying is you just got to think through all the details of what was reported to figure out whether or not that's going to be a viable option for us, right? Did he swoon in, in the grave? body stolen. That was the first lie told about the resurrection that we read about in Matthew that they said, just tell them that the body was stolen. that's interesting coming from the officials to the Roman guards, right, who should lose their life if in fact the body was stolen. We can't even see a Philippian jailer thinking he's going to live if he lets the prisoners out. And here we have Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb that are now passing the story because they were paid off. Yeah, people came and, and took the body. And again, who took the body? If it was the disciples that took the body, they stole the body and then presented a story that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then all of this, again, is back to a fabrication and an immoral story by a bunch of liars. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we got to know we're following something that is led by a bunch of people that are lying to us. And does that comport with anything you've learned in Scripture? Anything that we're teaching you to do to love truth and love light and love what's right? Or as it often has been proposed. Maybe they just thought they saw him. It was a doppelganger situation. They thought that Christ was resurrected. And, you know, maybe this was just a mistaken identity. And like anything that really tries to propose that Christ was not resurrected, but people thought he was, the, the way you quelch all of that, if you're trying to suppress it, which everyone did in the early centuries of the church, certainly in the first generation, they were trying to squelch the story. All you'd have to do is produce the body. And and that was never even attempted. There's no record of that. No one wrote of that. So I don't think this was mistaken identity. So everything hangs on whether or not he died and rose again or whether he didn't. And I think we need to rethink this in our own minds so that we're certain. I think that changes everything because I think there's a lot of people that get dragged to church and they traffic in all these religious things, but in their minds, intellectually, they're not fully convinced and certain that Christ rose from the dead. And you need to revisit that every now and then, right? Probably more than just at Easter time, you need to think about this, if this is true and do we affirm it? And I think some of the best minds in, in, in church history that have become great leaders in the church were challenged with that one thing. Did he genuinely rise from the dead? Well, I guess, and I hate to be too flowery and poetic, but if you still have John 20 open, look at verse 5, right? He didn't go in. I'm just saying poetically, at least in this applicational point, you need to go in. You need to research it. You need to figure this out. You need to know whether or not he rose from the dead. and You need to have certainty about that. Quickly here, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. John chapter 20, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb when he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That's an interesting detail. Then the other disciple uh, who had reached the tomb first, right? Not to be bragging, John says, but you know, I did get there first. Also, he went in and saw and believed. So finally he comes in and he goes, yes, This is a resurrection. This wasn't grave robbers. This wasn't, you know, just him walking out in grave clothes like some kind of mummy. Right? No. He rose. And they started to recall all these things. They didn't understand. They didn't yet understand, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. But they were going to, and they were going to preach about it, and they were going to hang their lives on it, and they were going to die for that fact. Verse 10, and then the disciples went back to their homes. This is a good little ending to our time together to talk about the reality of what it means. Scripture says this must happen, right? This is a loaded observation of John, for instance, saying, and I believed, I saw it. We recognized there were things that excluded every other, response, every other uh, proposal about what might have happened. We believed it, we know it, and as he says here, we didn't quite understand fully the necessity of it in Scripture, but, but we eventually did. And we saw the implications of it. We saw what it meant. Number three, if Christ has power over death, then we ought to understand what it means. What does it mean? And I think we need to answer that with some subpoints. What does it mean? Well, look at that phrase. It says they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Let's start with that one going to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. If God said something's going to happen, then it has to happen, right? If the Messiah, for instance... Malachi chapter 5, verse 2, was to be born in a village of Ephrathath called Bethlehem, then the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. He he can't be born in Galilee and Nazareth. He can't be born in Jerusalem. He's got to be born there. And of course, we could just start prophetically. If we're going to answer this question, right, we must understand it. We've got to understand that God has prophetically said this has got to happen. Just like there has to be a Judas. We can ask questions why, but it starts with, well, was it predicted? Is this what God said would happen? And of course, it is what God said would happen. Drop down to the bottom of Isaiah chapter 52. Start in verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Now, we know that Jesus used that phrase in John. You've studied it where that was a reference to his crucifixion. I'm not sure that's in view here. Matter of fact, this is how we see chapter 53 ramping up into the exaltation and glorification of the servants of Christ. But here, right, you can say, well, I see the imagery of being lifted up on a cross, but I don't think that's what's in view here. It's the idea of the exaltation of Christ. And you think, okay, this is a great story of God's man being honored and, you know, being glorified. and, And I get it. Well, verse 14 then reminds us that he was not always exalted. He wasn't on a trajectory of of glorification. It's as though he is killed. And this is what he's going to expand on in chapter 53. God's going to give us more on this. But he starts in verse 14 by saying, "...as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance." All you have to do is read the text of the crucifixion, as you have, and see how they beat him, put a crown of thorns on him. You can see him bloodied and naked on the cross in your imagination, and you can see this is not what you, you know, are going to ever pose for, you know, for a Christmas picture. This is ugly. It's awful. He's marred. He's swollen. He's beaten. His back is filleted, and he's, 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 he's tortured. I mean, you've seen the, the Gibson's uh, Passion of the Christ. That's not a bad depiction, I would imagine, of a Roman a uh, set of Romans uh, beating and, and, and flaying the back of, of a criminal with a cat of nine tails. And it says, and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. I mean, this is the worst kind of death to die. The Phoenicians created this way to hang people on a cross after they beat them and have them suffocate on a cross. And the Romans uh, perfected it in this particular period of time. And we can picture him with all the things leading in to the crucifixion being marred and, and, and looking grotesque. Well, there's so much imagery here in chapter 53 that's coming up about the sacrifice of him on the cross, even though the end of this is going to be he's exalted. Well, how does that work? That's called the resurrection, as we'll see. But here we see the process of his, him being filleted and bloodied and beaten. It says, and so he shall sprinkle many nations. And that idea of the cleansing as you would take a hyssop branch and throw it on the altar. This picture of the cleansing of, of many people, not just Israel, but many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they shall see. And what they did not, what they have not heard, they will understand. They didn't have the advantage of looking forward to it in the prophetic body of the corpus of religious Jewish prophecies, but they're going to get it, just like most of us, right? We weren't anticipating this by, by being raised in Jewish synagogues and saying, well, where's the Christ? Oh, we found him. But we learn about the Christ and we look backwards and we, we get it. And we are without word. We're like, okay, Christ has done what he has promised to do. And even though we didn't anticipate it in our culture or in our history, it was so in Israel. Verse 1, chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, many nations, but what did he look like? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Certainly how he was excluded, outcast, right? He, He was driven out of town. I mean, even when he was preaching in the synagogues in rural Galilee, they would run him out of town because of what he taught. Surely, though, he has borne our sorrows, I'm sorry, our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. It was like he was being punished by God. And yet what was happening, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the spanking, right? The, The whipping that brought us peace. And by his wombs we were healed. Like the fulfillment of the punishment was all given to him. And therefore we come away without the transgression pinned to us. And we deserved it and we needed it because all us like sheep, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one of us to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The imagery of the scripture of a pastoral God, right? The Lord who is the shepherd and all the straying animals, all the straying sheep going their own way. And what's the punishment? Well, it's all been laid on one, on the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the substitutionary payment for sin. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. This is the picture of how he's described before Pilate. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. It made Pilate mad. It made Herod mad. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, right? They were going to put him away with a bunch of criminals on a cross. He'd probably be taken to the Valley of Hinnom and thrown in it as, as a criminal. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death. There's our scene, right? Not only do we have Joseph of Arimathea, the Supreme Court Justice, but also Nicodemus, his sidekick. There he is with the rich and powerful in his death that take charge of his burial. Although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was the point. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. It wasn't the mob and it wasn't the crowd. It was the sprinkling that needed to be done as you would do with a guilt offering. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. It's the father that's killing the son. When he makes his soul an offering for guilt, look at this now, he shall see his offspring and prolong his, his days. I mean that's what happens. He's gonna see his disciples, he's gonna see his spiritual progeny, he's gonna see his 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 apostles again, and he'll prolong his days. He's gonna live on after his death. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, how's that work? I thought he was being crucified out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. So the father sees, and this is called propitiation in the New Testament, a satisfaction that the sacrifice was acceptable. It's what the priest would do as you lay a hand on the head of the animal and the animal is accepted as a payment for sin in that symbolic arrangement on the temple mount. It says the father was satisfied. The sacrifice is acceptable. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to death. When his soul makes him a guilt offering, he shall see his offspring prolong his his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteousness. Which, by the way, is the Hebrew equivalent of the word logizomai in the New Testament. In Romans 4, that there is a transaction that takes place because of his pain and suffering on the cross that we are considered righteous, that exchange of a lamb being sacrificed for the worshiper, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to be the victor. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. Well, how can you be a victor if you're dead? He was numbered with the transgressors, right? Yet he bore the sins of many, and here's something that only a living person can do. He makes intercession For the transgressors. This passage of Scripture, which has been sitting there since the seventh century before Christ, speaking of what God is going to do to cleanse the sins of the people, it's what Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophets are constantly looking at. There's going to be an atonement for sin, right? Is a picture of a suffering servant who's risen, who gets to see his spiritual followers after he's poured out his soul to the place of death. When you look at a passage like this, you say, okay, I get it when the Scripture must be fulfilled. The only way to have our sins forgiven. When John starts the ministry with Christ, he looks at him and says, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If you're the Lamb of God, you've got to rise from the dead. That's what this passage and many others will refer to in terms of a living intercessor, where the arm of the Lord comes forth and provides the payment for sin and lives to tell about it. You've got to understand what it means prophetically. You've got to understand what it means theologically. And I'm out of time, but at least jot this down. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. You want to understand the resurrection? You've got to see it in light of the theological necessity. And you know this. The wages of sin is death, right? And if death is the wages of sin and Christ is going to take away the sins of the world by him living in our place and dying in our place, then he's got to deal with the death problem. He has to reverse this. And theologically, we need a living Christ personally. We need to know what it means personally for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I don't even want to read this without reminding you that all of this is contingent. The blessing of a resurrection that you have that's in keeping with the resurrection that Christ had is contingent on the fact that you are rightly related to Him because you trust in Him. As he says at the death of his, or the funeral rather, if you want to call it that, of his friend Lazarus, he says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, even if you die, well then you're going to live. And by that, he meant the quality of life, not just the quantity of life. Because by the way, and just a little side note here, you know, everyone's going to be resurrected. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Paul preached it. When he was in the middle of a debate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he was on trial, he talked about the, the hope of the resurrection, knowing that all will be resurrected of both the just and the unjust. So everyone's going to have an immortal body. The question is where you're going to have that body. Are you going to have it in a place of exclusion from God and his gifts? Or are you going to have it in concert with God's gifts in his presence? But the joy and the goodness and the perfection and the beauty and all the things that come with real resurrection within the favor of God, it's all contingent. But I do want you to look at this in 1 Corinthians 15. Drop all the way down to verse 42. And I'm assuming that many of you here clearly have your trust in Christ, though you may not have eradicated fear as the way you ought to, or you're maybe pursuing godliness in an imperfect way as we all are, and you feel like you're behind the, the, you know, the curve. We need to know what our ultimate hope is. This whole passage is a reminder that if Christ rose from the dead, if you're trusting in Him, you're going to be resurrected from the dead. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. I mean, that's a really good thing to remind ourselves of. There's no aging. There's no pain. There's no, there's no decay. I mean, that's the hope of the resurrected body. It is sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. That's a good word. That's the word Jesus used when he was looking at the lilies of the field and he talked about the glory. Even Solomon and all of his glory, right, didn't look like, wasn't arrayed like one of those. I mean, there's beauty involved in this. There's something great involved in this in terms of who we'll be. Not only are we ageless and not only we have everyone and everything beautiful in that resurrected state. Look at the next line. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. One of the great things about the eternal state, it's hard for us to process, is that there's no night, right? There's people serving God, loving God, caring for each other, enjoying God's blessings without any reference to our sleeping or without any reference to our fatigue. This concept of power, of being tireless, that's the hope of the Christian life because we are in in the template of God's resurrection that He provided in Christ's. It is sown a natural body. Verse 44, it is raised a spiritual body. And some people think that means it's, uh, you know, non-tangible, right? some kind of ghostly resurrection. It's not. We're talking here about the same thing you would mean when you look at someone and say, well, there's a spiritual guy in our church. That's a spiritual guy in your small group. We're talking about it being, uh, having this, this direction, this bent, this proclivity, this habit toward doing what is right and good and godly. And the body we have now is not. It's it's natural. It goes toward all the wrong things. It has appetites and cravings for things that aren't righteous. But it's raised with all the right proclivities, all the right interests. There's a natural body, and we know all about that. and We fight it every day. And there's a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. It's not the natural. I'm sorry, it's not the spiritual That is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. There's a great line right there. We have this hope that Christ's resurrection is the template for our own. Verse 49, just as we have also borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I mean, that should excite us if we start to understand what it means prophetically, theologically, personally. I want us, because of that truth, to have the kind of mindset that Nicodemus and Joseph didn't have, that we're not still wondering like the disciples were in the first five verses of chapter 20, that we can start to recognize what the Scripture demands, which is not only prophetic fulfillment, but the completion of God's plan. This is not how we're designed to live. This is not the condition of our bodies. It'll be hard to recognize, I suppose, each other, particularly depending on our age in this life as we get used to each other in an imperfect state to walk into a kingdom where everything is the way it's supposed to be, where everything is restored to the way it should be. And that's the hope of the Christian life. It's not for this life. If we're about this life, Christianity is something you should pity us for. I hope that you believe that Christ has the power over death. You don't fear anything else. You know it for certain and you understand its implications. Let me pray for us. God, help us to be the kinds of Christians and kinds of fearless followers of Christ that know what it means to say that we follow a resurrected Christ, historically, in time, bodily resurrected, that we know when we go to a funeral of a Christian that this is a, this is a, a temporary separation that what we want to do is face this life with productivity, living for Christ, as Paul said, having lots of good things that we can accomplish here in this current life, particularly by seeing other people come to faith in Christ and built up in Christ, but to die is gain, and that we'll face our death with courage, we'll face the pain with courage, we'll face the monetary setbacks with courage, We'll do whatever it is in this life, knowing that there's something much better waiting for us in the next life. And as Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, uh, the, the, the sufferings, the frustrations, the setbacks of this life, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. We'll experience that firsthand. We won't just be spectators. We'll be participants in resurrected bodies that reflect the body of Christ. So God, get us excited about that. Let it change the way we think, the way we live, the way we prioritize our week. In Jesus' name, amen.